That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honour and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him what should be done for the man the king delights to honour. Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honour than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honour, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honour and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He rode Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisers and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. As they were drinking wine on that second day, the king asked again, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then King Esther answered, Queen Esther answered, if I have found favour with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is the man who had dared to do such a thing? Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. 
Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in my house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Havana, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, a gallows, 75 feet high, stands by Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning, everyone. I'm hoping that this is working. Kerry, thank you very much for bringing us that reading. And uh, Kerry just mentioned that she's one of the essential workers. I do want to thank, I know there's a number of uh, essential workers at St. Stephen's. Thank you, if that's you, for all that you're doing, working under these kind of um, not great circumstances and working for the good of all of us. We, uh, we really appreciate it. And like Joel said, it's Father's Day, so uh, happy Father's Day to all the St. Stephen's fathers. Keep doing what you're doing. It's a very important role. And it's one we all fail at, but um, uh, we can get better. So keep trying. And happy Father's Day to my father, who's a Wally. <laughs> uh, I also wanted to say we've been, we don't know what's going to happen with the alert levels, but um, at some stage we will, we presume, move down to alert level two. At certain times in the past, when alert level two's happened, we haven't met together because you can't meet over 100. And I think there'll be some changes to the alert level two regulations this time. But the staff teams have been working this week on plans so that we can meet as well as we can under alert level two, because who knows, knows how long that level might last. So uh, as soon as we know a little bit more from the government about when and what that looks like, we'll be, we'll be uh, telling you what our plans are and hopefully how we can um, uh, meet. Also, just while we're still under alert level three, um, for those who are, are struggling or wrestling in different ways, please be in touch if there are ways that we can help or support. We want to do that. We can do that. So um, uh, let us know. I hope you've been enjoying the service this morning. Uh, I have the action song, pretty disappointing from the Bean family, I've got to be honest. Two didn't take part at all. One did kind of half and half. One did it really well. Uh, not really well. If you've seen me do Zumba by Sandra at camp, that's kind of how I did it. But um, right. We're into the word. We're into Esther. Great to be back with you in the book of Esther. One of the reasons you can know the Bible is the word of God is you've got a story like we've just heard in chapter six and seven, which is a rollicking good story in Esther. But it's very different people, very different time, very different culture. And yet, as I've been working on it this week, still so relevant to our lives today, still so uh, applicable. And I hope that by the time we finish this morning, you can see that uh, yourself. I'm back to having the family outside. I can see the three girls out there and they were just nearly attacked by a bird. It's very off-putting when you're preaching and a bird is attacking live your family. Take Molly, you can have her. Right, now, previously in Esther, if you haven't been with us over this series or you've forgotten because lots happened during the weeks, let's remember where we're at in the book of Esther. Uh, Esther is telling the story of a small group of Jewish people living in the Persian Empire. Uh, the time is about 400 years before Jesus. Uh, 
And remember, there'd been an exile that the Babylonians had come in, conquered Israel, taken a lot of the Jews out, and they were now living in exile in Babylon. But a long time after that, the Persians came in, overtook Babylon, and they released the Israelites. Most of the Israelites went back to the promised land, but some who'd been living in, in this area for a long time remained. And Esther tells the story about some of these Jews, these people of God, living in the Persian Empire, living in a country, a culture that's very different from their own. They're not in the promised land. They're in a place where uh, people didn't have time, didn't have much room for God. And that straight away makes it applicable to us. That's just like you and I as Christians living in New Zealand in 2021. We too live in a place and a time where God and his ways have very little to do with the way that most people live their life, has very little to do with swaying public opinion, has very little to do with uh, having influence over the laws of the land. We're seeing that at the moment over the morals and standards of people. And that can be a hard place for the people of God to live when you're living surrounded by people who have different standards and morals and ways of living and purposes and priorities it can be hard was in the time was is for us uh, in New Zealand in 2021 was back then during the time of Esther and we've seen that as the uh, as the book of Esther looks at these Jews living in the Persian Empire there are four main characters in particular that we've been introduced to two non-Jews and two Jews the two non-Jews are the Persian king Xerxes this is a man of incredible wealth uh, a man of incredible power. He throws huge extravagant parties. One in chapter one lasted 180 days. Uh, but there's also a guy called Haman. Haman is not Persian either. He's an Amalekite. And we know from earlier in the Old Testament, the Amalekites and the Jews are, are enmity. Uh, he's one of those. But Haman has risen through the ranks and become the 2IC to King Xerxes. He's the second most powerful man in the, in the empire. But he's a nasty piece of work. Now, King Xerxes in chapter one had removed his wife because she displeased him and had had a contest to find the best replacement. And Esther had won, if you can call it winning. She'd been selected. Now, Esther is one of the two main Jewish characters, but no one knows she's a Jew. I'll say why in a moment. But she won the contest and she's now queen. So you've got King Xerxes and Haman, who are the two non-Jews, then Esther, who's a Jew, who's become the queen of uh, Persia. But she'd been raised by another Jew, a guy called Mordecai. Mordecai is her uncle, but he's more like a father to her because she was very young when her parents died and Mordecai had stepped in and looked after her. It was more, And he kept looking after her when she was in the palace. It was him who'd said, Esther, don't tell anyone you're a Jew. Protect yourself. Mordecai had also done one other thing in chapter two, which was very important. He'd saved King Xerxes' life. He'd heard about a plot to assassinate King Xerxes, and he told Esther, and Esther had told the king, so the king's life was saved. But since chapter two and that incident, he's, done, he's made an unwitting enemy. He's unwittingly made Haman his enemy. Haman who's now the second most powerful man in the, in the empire, wants everyone to bow down. And they are bowing down as he walks around the empire, but Mordecai refuses to. And it eats Haman up. Haman hates it. He cannot kind of live with this um, rebellion of Mordecai. And so Haman manipulated King Xerxes into agreeing to wipe out not just Mordecai, but all the Jews on one particular day. Now, he didn't say it was the Jews. He didn't name them. He just said a, a rebellious group of people. But he said, make an edict and wipe them out. Annihilate them. This is genocide. Haman is a bad guy. Xerxes agreed. 
But since then, Haman can't bear that this edict, this annihilation, genocide of the Jews is going to happen so far in the future. He wants to get rid of Mordecai now. And so last week in the passage that uh, Joel was preaching from, we saw Haman construct a 75-foot gallows to hang a person on because he wants to hang Mordecai on it right now. He can't wait till that fateful day that all the Jews are going to get uh, killed. So we pick things up in chapter 6 and chapter 7. And it's the same night, that night, chapter 6, verse 1 begins, that night of the day that, that Haman had built the 75-foot gallows. And these two chapters are action-packed. A lot happens in them. So let's look at it. We pick things up in a bedroom in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. And King Xerxes can't sleep. See, it's a great story, isn't it? So what does he do? King Xerxes, as he lies in his palace uh, in Susa, the Persian capital, he watches a bit of late night TV. No, can't do that. He raids the fridge. No, doesn't do that. He arranges for the books of the Chronicles to be read to him. Now, what is the book of Chronicles? Not the, the book Chronicles in the Bible. The, the, the Chronicles were an historical account of his reign over Persia. Now, some commentators say he chose this book because it would have been boring and help him sleep. But I think if you think that way, you're missing what this, this is a rare insight into King Xerxes and what he's like. What's he doing? He's Googling himself. That's what he's doing. He's reliving his greatest hits. He's getting someone read out to him all the wonderful glory days that he's had and the past events that he's done. He's Today, you'd be going over your story or your timeline on social media and reliving all the best bits of your life. That's what he's doing. But as he has this read to him, he hears about that incident, which would have been about five or six years ago, the incident when Mordecai saved his life. When Mordecai had heard the assassination plot and he'd made sure that King Xerxes' life was uh, uh, was saved. Remember, when, when I preached on chapter two, I preached that Mordecai at the time didn't receive any reward for this. But the last verse of chapter two said it was recorded in the history books. Well, now, five or six years later, he's hearing those history books and he hears and remembers what Mordecai did. And so Xerxes asks the people who are reading the story to him, what honor, what recognition did we give Mordecai? And they say, oh, we didn't give him anything. Well, that's not good. Persian kings back then rewarded this kind of loyalty generously and publicly. And they did that because it would breed more loyalty and protect them uh, in different ways. So what's Xerxes going to do? Because he didn't do anything back then. Well, we know what Xerxes is like. He doesn't do anything without asking someone else's advice because he can't make up his mind about anything. So in verse four, he says, who else is around here in the court? Well, clearly we're thinking no one else is going to be there because it's the middle of the night. Because remember, you can't sleep, Xerxes. But actually we're told, verse four, Haman's just arrived in the middle of the night. And Haman's arrived because he's so desperate to get Mordecai hanged on his gallows. He's come early, bright and early, to get hold of Xerxes to try and manipulate him to do it. So Xerxes says, get me Haman then if he's here. Bring him in. And Haman comes in and Xerxes asks him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now, he hasn't named anyone. He's just said, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? He's thinking about Mordecai. But Haman thinks to himself, well, who's Xerxes going to honor except this guy? I'm the one that Xerxes is going to uh, honor. So he answers the question with what he would like to happen to himself. 
And so Haman answers Xerxes saying, look, well, I think you should treat the guy that you would like to treat with honor by dressing him up in your clothes, by putting him on your house, uh, horse, not house, putting him on your horse, by parading him, by getting some other nobles to parade him in front of all the, the country so that they can see the honor and that you're bestowing on this guy. It's a comical few verses because three or four times in these verses, Haman keeps mentioning, this is what you should do for the man the king delights to honor. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, we know who it is. And Xerxes says, great idea. Well done, Haman. We'll do that for Mordecai. Imagine how Haman must have felt. And then it's worse. He says, and you, Haman, you'll be the noble that puts him in my clothes, puts him on the horse and parades him out in front of everyone. This is a nightmare for Haman. Haman had built these 75-foot gallows. Why do you build 75-foot gallows? You don't need them to be 75 feet. He built them so that everyone could see what was going to happen to Mordecai. He wanted the whole people. He wanted Mordecai paraded in his death in front of all of them. Now Mordecai is going to be paraded in front of all of them by Haman himself in glory as the king's savior. This is terrible for Haman, but Haman's got to do it because the Persian king has said so. So Haman does do it. He gets Mordecai, puts him in the clothes, puts him on the horse, uh, parades him in front of all the people as the great one, the, the king's savior. And then at the end of that, we're told Mordecai goes back to the king's gate where he works and Haman returns home in shame. And when he gets there, he's greeted by his wife and friends, the same wife and friends that last week, if you remember Joel preaching about, he was showing off to and being obnoxious about all the great things that he's got. And now they say, you're in trouble, Haman. In fact, they say, if Mordecai is a Jew, you can't stand against him, Haman. So things are not good for Haman in chapter six. Then we move to chapter seven. It's even worse for Haman. Here, we've got another banquet put on by Esther for Xerxes and Haman. Remember last week, we saw another banquet put on uh, by Esther for Xerxes and Haman. But here's the second one. Last, last time, Xerxes had asked Esther twice, you can have anything you want, Esther. What do you want? Even up to half the kingdom. And Esther hadn't given an answer. But this time, at this banquet, she will. It's day two. She's still waiting, even at this banquet, before she gives the answer, because timing is very important for Esther. But in part two, Xerxes asks her again, Queen Esther, verse two, chapter seven, verse two, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. And this time, Esther gives an answer. Verse three, if I've found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life, that's my petition, and spare my people, that's my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we'd merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Now, I want you to think about this answer by Esther, because this is an amazing answer. This is, this is a masterclass by Esther. She's been patient. She hasn't rushed this. She didn't do it at the first banquet. She hasn't even done it on day one of this banquet. And she doesn't ask for anything selfish. She's asking on behalf of her people. Although the first thing she says is spare my life, no one knows she's a Jew. Her life's not in danger. She's only saying this to help her people. So she's not doing anything selfish. She shows due respect and honor for the king, because if she'd got that right, he wouldn't have heard anything else. But he's, she's buttering him up. If I found favor with you, O king, if it pleases your majesty, if we'd only been slaves, I wouldn't have bothered you with this. 
but then but then she asks then she asks for what she wants and king xerxes had said what is your petition what is your request and listen to her answer grant me my life this is my petition and spare me my people that is my request she answers his question exactly perfectly and then you might think she's over exaggerating when she's saying that her and her people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation no no no. go back to chapter three she's using the exact language that haman used about what was going to happen to the jews uh, destruction slaughter and annihilation so she her, her answer here is perfect done in the appropriate way precise in language not overblown or exaggerated and crystal clear I point that out because Christians who are living in a non-Christian environment, not in the promised land, like you and I here in New Zealand or Esther in the, the Persian Empire, when the people of God communicate, often we don't do it in a very good way. We're not heard properly. We try and get our point across, but it's misunderstood or, or misheard because the culture doesn't understand us as Christians and people. Esther is a wonderful example of a, one of the people of God in a non-Christian environment who speaks with patience, clarity. She knows what she's saying. She's not just exaggerating. She's not just full of bluster and blurting things out with anger and all those sorts of things. She's precise, deliberate, measured. It's really good stuff by Esther here. Well, Xerxes hears this and he's outraged. Now, what's amazing to us is we can't believe what uh, well, he says, who's, who's done this? Who's done this to you and to your people? Not realizing uh, you've done this, Xerxes. You're the one who signed the edict. But he doesn't know that yet. But you can ima imagine how Haman must have been feeling here. As soon as Esther was saying this, he must have clicked, oh, my goodness, Esther's a Jew. And then he, she, he hears uh, Xerxes say, Who put, who's done this? And he must be absolutely terrified by this stage. But Esther answers. She says, verse six, the adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Boom. That's it. I mean, this is kind of, uh, it's all happened. Haman, we're told, is terrified. Xerxes is furious. Xerxes, though, gets up and leaves the room and goes out to the garden. We're not told why, but I think he was probably looking for some other advisor to tell him what to do because he never he can never work out what to do. Haman, who realizes he's in trouble and is terrified, doesn't go after the king. He stays in the room uh, to beg for his life from Esther. He probably thinks Esther's a softer touch. But this, again, is a mistake because we're told that when King Xerxes comes back into the room, he sees Haman falling on a couch, the couch with Esther on, and then accuses her of assaulting his wife. Uh, so things get worse and worse for Haman. And the upshot is Haman is hung on the gallows that he had had constructed for Mordecai. I just think about the irony there for a moment. Uh, Shakespeare popularized a, a phrase in Hamlet, hoist on your own petard. And um, we don't really understand it today, but it, it means being blown up by your own bomb. You've made a bomb and it blows up and you, you're the one who gets blown up, hoisted by your own petard. That's exactly what happens to Haman here. He'd made these gallows for Mordecai and he's the one who ends up on them, hanging upon them. Well, that's the two chapters. Incredible chapters, aren't they? So, I mean, just a kind of riveting story. Two things I'd like for us to take out of the, this passage. First thing I'd like us to think about, first thing I'd like us to consider as a result of this is the lives that we live as the people of God, the lives that we live. I think the story of Esther as a whole, and these two chapters certainly, force us to, to consider as the people of God the lives we lead. 
and you can see the right way to live and the wrong way to live. We see in Xerxes and Haman, a life, lives lived full of pride. That's who Xerxes and Haman are. They're worried about themselves. They're worried about their riches and how they're viewed. They're worried about uh, everything because of themselves. And we see the destruction of living lives that way. Both of them are consumed with not just themselves, but because of themselves, power, riches, fame. They live for the things of this world and their pride leads them to arrogance and not being able to see things from other people's point of view and foolishness. And it's so fleeting. In chapter five, the, the chapter that Joel brought to us so well last week, Haman had everything. He was number two in the empire. Everyone bowed down to him. He was having banquets with the king and the queen. He was showing off in front of his wife and friends with all these things that he had. The next day, he's dead and it's all gone. It's so fleeting. And friends, this is not just the Persian Empire 400 years before Jesus. This is now in New Zealand 2021. This is the lives that people lead today. They make decisions and take actions out of pride purely for self, for self. Because they're worried about self, they want riches, power, fame. They want to be influencers. They want to be consumers. They want people to see who they are and know what they have. And so they post it all over on social media. And this is Xerxes and Haman. And it seems so attractive, seems so desirable, but it's so fickle and so temporary. And Xerxes and Haman are portrayed as fools. The, their pride leads them to foolishness. If you read the book of Proverbs alongside Esther, you will see that Xerxes and Haman fulfill the role of the fool that's described all the way through Proverbs. And Esther fulfills wisdom. Xerxes and Haman are so pride that, proud that Xerxes has to ask for advice all the time because he can't think of anything outside of his own kind of objectives and aims. Haman is so consumed by pride that he um, that he's, his arrogance leads to, to desiring genocide. Both of them are slighted. They have bruised egos. Remember, King Xerxes by his wife and then uh, Haman by Mordecai, and they overreact in this terrible way. But they, didn't, they weren't just born with that kind of evil. It came. It, it developed and grew and matured through the, the compost heap of pride in their hearts. The world today is, is the same. It's full of pride and selfishness, and it's so destructive. The world says today, live for self, pursue fulfillment for you. And it says you'll get that fulfillment if for you it's all about self-expression and self-determination and seeking and grasping power and influences, riches and possessions. But it doesn't work. It fails. It doesn't satisfy or fulfill Instead, it's destructive, and you see it with Xerxes and Haman through the book of Esther. Esther and Mordecai are the exact opposite. Instead of lives of pride, they live lives of humility. They put other people first. Mordecai looked out for Esther from a child. When she goes to the palace, he's still putting his, head, head on the his neck on the line for her, saying, keep your identity a secret, otherwise you could be in trouble. Esther herself in chapter 2 when Mordecai had been responsible for saving the king, Esther could have taken credit for it, but she gave credit to Mordecai. And now she could keep quiet and she will be fine. She'll carry on as queen, but she puts her neck on the line for the, her people, to save her people. In the chapter before ours, she said, if I perish, when, when I go to the king and tell him, if I perish, I perish. 
she she displays wisdom all the way through remember what i was saying before about her answer being so good she showed patience restraint uh, precision here's one example from the book of proverbs when it describes wisdom this is proverbs 17 he who has knowledge spares his words and a man of understanding is of calm spirit see the opposite of that if you're a fool you just blurt out lots and lots and lots and you're not calm even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace when he shuts his lips he's considered perceptive Haman and Xerxes are one side Esther's the other and today the world that you and I live in at the moment we are bombarded all the time by people with outrage spewing forth at a huge volume everything they're thinking and feeling we're getting bombarded with hurts and demands and rage-filled beliefs and bluster and it's not patient it's not considered it's not kind it's not gracious it's just loud bullying Esther's the opposite and it comes from humility when you don't just think you're right and you need to be heard by everyone else and everyone else needs to do what you think it comes from humility Esther waits and is gracious gracious and precise uh, both her and Mordecai lived for others before themselves. They live to serve, not to be served, like our Savior, the one in whose footsteps we follow. Friends, that's what we were created for, you and I, to serve, not to be served. And life works better when we live that way. As Matthew 16 puts it, Jesus, this is Jesus speaking, whoever wants to save his life, so many people in this world just want to save their life and live for themselves. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? That was Esther. If I perish, I perish. Serving the Lord and serving others is what you and I were created for. And when we live that way, we live with the grain of why our creator gave us life. And life is more meaningful and satisfying and fulfilling. Life is not about the most toys wins. It's not about who can get the most. It's not about touching fame and influence and power. So many people, we, we all tell stories, don't we, of when we met a famous person or we brushed uh, an incident that was significant. And um, most people, when they have those experiences, struggle to live the rest of their lives. You see these reality TV stars who were famous for one moment and then they can't live the rest of their life because they had this thing they wanted, but then they can't, or athletes who for a certain period had fame and fortune and then they struggle. I love it in this passage. Mordecai is paraded in front of the whole Persian empire as if he's the king. And then we're told, then he went back to the king's gate and he just carried on because he, he wasn't grasping those things. He was living a humble life serving others. So friends, the first thing we should consider is the lives we lead. We should consider the lives we lead. Secondly, though, we should also consider the God we follow. These chapters don't just demand we think about the lives we live and work out what we're going to do or not do. They should get us to consider the God we follow. I was telling Jamie about the story of these two chapters earlier in the week. I was excited about the storyline and what goes on. And Jamie said, it's an amazing story, isn't it? I can't believe more movies haven't been made of this great story. And she's right. You could make a great movie of it. I've even got a title, Sleepless and Sousa. Boom, you're welcome. <laughs> Copyright, JB. Sleepless and Sousa. But she's also wrong. Sorry, not wrong, dear. Uh, not wrong, but there's another way of looking at it. I don't think it would make a good movie because if you read through chapter six, it's so 
contrived. It's so full of coincidences. Xerxes just happens to be unable to sleep. He just happens to have the chronicles of his uh, history read out. It just happens to mention the Mordecai one, just as Haman happens to be coming to the palace to get Mordecai hung. And it's so contrived and so many coincidences. But of course, it's not contrived and there's no coincidences. For every Christian who reads through Esther 6, we know these are not coincidences. This is God at work. Although God's not mentioned by name in the book of Esther, you read through it and you can see God is at work uh, making sure everything is happening in the details, in the small things. Mordecai had done the right thing six years ago and nothing had happened. But suddenly on this particular night, six years later, we can see why and what God's doing. God is drawing all the threads together. He's making sure the tapestry of life is going the right place at the right time for all these people. God is making sure his plans and purposes are working out for his people. Friends, you and I are his people, not living in the promised land. Consider God and trust him. Consider the God you follow and trust him. He looks after his people even when we're not in the promised land. A couple of weeks ago, our first Sunday in lockdown, we, we took a pause from the book of Esther. And we were in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we saw the Apostle Paul say, fix your eyes on what is unseen. That's this message. Consider the God you follow and trust him. The unseen, we can see what we're going through and everything that's happening, but the unseen is the God who's in charge behind it all. And trust him when it looks bleak, rough and tough, dark and painful. Because the truth is, friends, that what happens here in Esther is what happens at a cosmic level, ultimately by God. God brings down the proud and he raises up the humble. That's what he does ultimately. We don't always see it in each individual life in this world, but ultimately that's what happens. And so we can trust him. Now, this is not the end of the book of Esther, because although Haman gets his comeuppance here, although things look a bit better for Esther, what we're going to see as we carry on next week is the edict for the Jews can't be removed. So they're still in danger. So that's why there's still a few more chapters left in the book of Esther. But at this particular part, consider the lives you lead and consider the God you follow. Sometimes we need to focus on the lives we lead. Sometimes there are moments in our lives when we need to stop and go, where am I going? What am I doing? And I said last year that lockdown might be a good opportunity for that. Sometimes we've got a bit extra time on our hands in lockdown. Sometimes uh, just the, the, the fact that our lives have been so shaken up gives us a moment to go, what am I doing? What am I valuing? Where am I? What's my direction and my priorities? Think about it today. Are you, are you living like Xerxes and Haman or are you living like Mordecai and Esther? who in the end are living like Jesus, living for Jesus, for you and I. How, where are you going in your life? Think about the life you lead. But there are other times where it's not so much about the lives we lead. What we need to do is remember the God we follow and remember that he has us in his hands. We can trust him. And ultimately, he brings down the proud, raises up the humble. I'll leave it for you to work out where you're at at the moment and what you need to do. I know where I am and what I need to do. It's been great to be with you in this time in Esther. Why don't I pray? And then I'll pass back to Joel. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to think on, I mean, these two incredible chapters where, where so much happens. And I pray that we would not just enjoy the story, but think about uh, our lives in the light 
of what you've revealed in your word. If there are any of us this morning who need to make some changes, who need to maybe change direction or stop doing certain things or start doing certain things, give us the knowledge that we need to and the desire and strength to be able to do it so that we may live more wholeheartedly for you, for the Lord Jesus, serving you and serving others. But for some of us, Father, it may be less about what we're doing and more just a need to trust you. I know even last night, I had a period of time where I was feeling down about where everything's at and where we're at as a world and a country and personally. And sometimes we just need to rem remind ourselves, Father, that you're in control, still working out your plans and purposes for your people. May we trust you more wholeheartedly and uh, live in the light of that. So please be with us as we seek to put this into practice in our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.